This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com. That's the Dig Me Out Union. Excuse me. Dig Me Out Union, not the Dig Me Out Union. Digmeoutunion.com. Jay, go get that URL wide. Just said that. Oh. Sorry. It never ends, man. It never ends. The Dig Me Out Union. The. I want to trademark the, Jay. Can I do that? The Ohio State University? The Ohio State University. You've been living in Columbus too long, man. I have. I've been living a long time, Jay. You know how I know that? (laughs) Terrible transition. Because we're doing the albums of 1990, which means 30 years have passed. Dang. I know. It's a long time. But this is how we start every year, or we have been for the last couple years. Uh, We start with our first roundtable in January is a look back at at a particular year from the 90s. And the albums that came out, I'm sure a lot of people are going to know records from 1990. But what we're going to focus on, as, as this podcast does... The overlooked, the underappreciated, albums that became influential that maybe didn't appear so when they were first released, and give us, or give everybody uh, our lists of what are our favorites, both in terms of uh, popular records and um, maybe some lesser known records. So if you want to talk about how much you love, you know, the Clint Black album, put put yourself in my shoes. That's totally fine. Uh, or ZZ Top's Recycler, that's cool too. <laughs> But we also might dig a little deeper than that. To help us yeah. do so, Jay, we have some returning guests. Excellent. Not both from Canada, although it will sound like they are. I'll tell you why. Joining us from actual Canada, Mr. Johnny Hooper. Welcome back, sir. It's not been that too long since uh, since you've been here. No, I'm just uh, I'm just a piece of the furniture. Dig me out. You are a piece of the furniture. Uh, you're... Um, is this the fifth episode you've joined us for? This is my fifth rodeo. You're a five-timer. You get the five-timer belt buckle coming your way. Hey, it's a smoking jacket, big guy. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I got to check with the merch people. Please do. Okay. And then joining us from Hamilton, not Ontario, but O-H-I-O. Mr. Jeremy Amen. Welcome back, Jeremy. Thanks for having me again. And this is, uh, you joined us last year for the sophomore slump reversed. Now, none of the records that we're talking about here, well, I guess there could be a sophomore record in here somewhere, but uh, we wouldn't have talked about it necessarily because we talked about bands that put out records in the 90s for those sophomore slump reversed reversals. Yeah, so, there was that technicality yes, that there was. Uh, eliminated Nirvana. Exactly. Exactly. So, we did get some comments, of course, 
from our patrons over at Patreon, and we will bring those up as we are going along. Some of them might be obvious ones that we'll talk about, and some of them might be less obvious. Johnny, let me start with you. Some of the records that you mentioned in your comments, you want to bring them up? Maybe these are records that people might not think of immediately when they're thinking about 1990. Maybe one or two, but I think a lot of these, or at least a couple of these, are, are probably going to be lesser knowns. Yeah, so 1990 for me is it's kind of a turning point year where I had been heavily um, into the English music scene, specifically Manchester and 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 the like. But um, uh, some of the notable records of that time are they're going to be things like Ride, um, their first record, Nowhere, came out that year. Um, Teenage band club uh, obviously a Scottish band but uh, their first record dropped in, in 90 uh, called a Catholic education um, lush put out a, uh, a compilation called gala which had a sweetness and light on it which I was really really keen on at the time uh, happy Mondays were going uh, full steam ahead with pills and thrills and belly aches um, and then you had kind of the, the second tier bands like in spiral carpets um, their first record is called Life. Uh, the Charlatans had their first record called Some Friendly. Uh, the Fall put out a record like they would have every year. Uh, it was one of their lesser works called Extricate, but still, uh, a, still a decent enough effort. Uh, Morrissey put out Bona Drag, which is a, a comp, uh, but had very strong material on it. Uh, but 1990 for me is, is definitely that transition year where I've moved from all these English artists uh, and then starting with Pixies, it's gotten me full force into kind of the American indie scene moving forward at that point. Yeah, this is a real interesting year. And, and Jay and I have talked about in the in recent episodes how we don't have a lot of material from this year. It, mm-hmm. And I think... You know, the more familiar material is the stuff that came out in the mid-90s, mid to late-90s, which is where our, our numbers are really high. But I was surprised looking at this year and seeing, just if you look at January of 1990, if you look what was released, you've got Guar, you've got They Might Be Giants, Toad the Wet Sprocket, The Sundays, The Black Crows. I mean, this is these are bands that would be relevant throughout the decade. And they're starting out the year, and then you get into February, and it's like Primus, and and the KLF, which will uh, not be around for much longer. But um, there was the the concept that oh well, Nirvana ushered in this sweep of alternative music is the is the um, incorrect and, and sort of the fallacy that uh, has been written into the history books but really there was quite a lot going on from the get-go with 1990 in terms of alternative and indie music um jeremy you didn't list any but what were some of the what were some of the records from 1990 that stuck out to you as far as uh maybe some that aren't up with uh you know this is the year of allison chain's first record everybody knows allison chain's but maybe aren't on that level but are deserving of that so um, the problem for me is 1990 was such a, a transitional year for me. 
Um, I, I kind of grew up uh, really just into into heavy metal and rock and roll in general. So 1990 kind of caught me probably, I probably still had the mullet and the jean jacket. I can't <laughs> remember. Uh, so it's strange. You were talking about, about uh, Nirvana, the, the, the idea that Nirvana kind of, kind of ushered us into that, that next era. But uh, for me, the things that really started to open my eyes um, to, to other types of music um, it kind of happened in 89. That was like with Faith No More's uh, King's X. I got huge in the King's X with their second album. Um, so 1990 is just a strange year for me because I was still kind of holding on to a lot of the, the metal roots and rock roots that I had and hadn't quite branched out into a lot of the alternative stuff um, until around the time that Nirvana hit the following year. So I was getting into some of it, but it's really right. strange to me looking back to the 90s because i'm seeing all these albums that i really love uh uh but a lot of them i didn't really pick up on until i went back you know to get the back catalog uh so i mean the only one that really stands out as a record that wasn't huge uh but it was hugely influential for me um and and i still listen to it a lot as king's x faith of love uh um but other than that, I mean, at the time, I was really into, like, Rust in Peace from Megadeth and Facelift from Alice in Chains. Uh, but the things that I would go back to listen to now are the things that I wasn't really listening to then. So it's really hard to hard to call out anything like that. Well, I'll say the, the one that stuck out for me that was this clearly nobody listened to it or very few people listened to it based on the record sales at the time was this is the year of Uncle Tupelo's debut album, No Depression. And I know it only sold like a few thousand copies when it came out. And that's how they just slowly, slowly built a following, you know, record after record, you know, four albums and four records or, or four years after that. Then they broke up, Sunvolt and Wilco happened. And then that sort of is retroactively placing a lot of interest. That's a band that almost started an entire musical movement there's a, a, a magazine named after their debut uh, album No Depression and you know you get a whole uh, following with with uh, alternative country throughout the decade and, and well past that So that to, that to me was like one of those records where I was like, huh, this one completely fell or was under the radar at the time, but clearly went on to be super important um, to the decade. Uh, Jay, well, sorry about that. I, I think I misunderstood what you were. Oh, okay. were no, no, no. That's okay. Sorry if I was um, unclear. No, no. I was just thinking of things that, that, that hit me at the time. Gotcha. Uh, as special albums for me at the time. But most of the stuff that I recognize is extremely influential uh, from that year, uh, actually, I was kind of giving things a rating from one to ten, and Uncle Tupelo's No Depression got a ten. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Fugazi's Repeater. Um, I feel like the Faith Hope Love 
Faith, uh, Hope, Love album was pretty influential. Obviously, Facelift, Jane's Addiction. Um, I feel like that Concrete Blonde Bloodletting album, I think that was 1990. I think that that kind of opened mm-hmm. up some eyes to, to uh, you know, maybe maybe woke some people up that didn't think that they could actually get into a band or, you know, rock and roll type format. And they said, hey, this lady's doing it. It's not just for the guys. Um, uh, Mother Love Bones Apple came out that year, right? So kind of yep. a big deal too. And then uh, Social Distortions, I can't remember. What, I know it was their self-titled album. I can't remember if that was their their first album. I think that might have been their third. Uh, that was pretty huge too. So um, those would be the first ones that would come to mind, I think. Jay, what about you? What records did you look back and go, oh, wow, I, that came out this year. That was That's interesting. That's That was pre- pretty important. Yeah. I would... I think my story is similar to Jeremy. I was at this time uh, really, I don't even know, I wouldn't even say I was read transitioning quite yet <clears throat> for, to being more aware of like alternative indie music. I was firmly rooted in uh, hard rock, MTV, metal, like dial MTV at this time was huge and all of the, the bands that that was supporting and uh, whatnot, which I, I hadn't remember that it was 90. I kept thinking it was like more 89. But I mean, this is the year like Dan Yankees is huge and uh, Firehouse is huge and Scorpion's Crazy World album is Warrant. huge with Warrant, Cherry Pie, Winger, uh, second album, like Queensryche Empire. Like it's it Poison's Flesh and Blood. Like that stuff was all over mtv and was huge at this time yep. uh, for for most of the year it really defined you know commercial rock radio rock um so um that that was a bit and i was listening to all that and i was still in all that now i started to get into things it, i think what's notable about some of those um those albums um that were bigger and, and sort of on the fringe of that type of band was a lot of those albums were trying to be a little bit more like I don't want to say serious, but they were trying to be more um, I, guess, I guess you could say serious or like credible. You know, even if you just like look at the album art, how it shifted from like eighty eight and eighty nine, ninety. You know, they're going. You see like more black and white. You see more like grittier kind of imagery. The bands start to like try to tone things down they hadn't got i mean obviously none of them knew exactly where this was going but there seemed to be like some push on a lot of these bands that maybe were in their second or third record to you know simplify and try to become a little bit more classic you've got the black crows who really are you know sort of a new band that really take that next step of let's be more classic here and not be so like flashy 80s neon big hair um and simplify things see i felt like you started to see um some bands even in that genre start to take the step um that year um that you know bands like um um allison change would just blow open you know and really which they were a band that was rooted in that same kind of sound too they just had you know were in seattle and had taken it further and 
you know, had a whole, uh, I think, a year or two ahead of a lot of these other bands in terms of where this would all go. Um, so I was kind of uh, going back and looking, uh, just surprised a little bit on, on uh, how many of those albums were big at that time. And then things that started to poke through that were different for me um, that I was actually listening to, like Jellyfish's Belly Button, I was aware of and started to get into. That was a little bit different. <clears throat> um, Megadeth's Rest in Peace. Um, King Zach's Faith, Hope, and Love. Um, those were things where even Living Colors, Time's Up. You know, you started to see this newer, different uh, bands and different kind of approaches um, start to become a thing that, you know, wasn't the typical path. Um, so those were some of the things that I remember really listening to at the time um, and kind of what defined my 1990. Let me mention a couple of comments from Patreon because they cover uh, some of the stuff we've talked about. Eric Peterson mentioned King's X, as you guys have. It says, an interesting record that had a hit song and some mainstream airplay along with MTV Video. Queensryche Empire was also important. They were a band from Seattle with a huge hit album that while metal and proggy was engaging with a more political lyrical side that was more in line with alternative than pop metal of that era. Yep. And that's that's another band that were they were definitely yeah, they were more serious. They had a political tilt. They were socially conscious to some degree, even on that record. And yeah, you could start to see like, okay, well, this is a little different. Um, so, <clears throat> I had the single for Silent Lucidity with the B side of Jet City Woman. Yeah, and I have it again. I found it for was- like fifty cents at a Goodwill. <laughs> Those songs were big. I mean, oh yeah, uh, even the single Empire was pretty big, at least on MTV. So. He also mentioned Social Distortion self-titled. He says, notable album that was really the start of the cult for the band. It was far enough away from their punk roots to be accessible and mature enough to reflect on the previous decade. It also might be their best known uh, songs, Story of My Life and Ball and Chain, which I think it is because uh, CD 102.5 here in Columbus still plays those singles. Yeah. Like they're never out of rotation. Um, Scott Witt mentioned a couple bands uh, that I think we should talk about. One, uh, Pantera, Cowboys from Hell. That, to me, they started something, or I I think they started something in 90 with that record in terms of that southern metal, that uh, that thing that Dimebag did that was so unique to his style. Um... He also, they also, or uh, Scott also mentioned uh, Prongs Beg to Differ and Love Hates Blackout and the self-titled album by Trouble that was produced by Rick Rubin. I'm not familiar with Love Hate or Trouble, and I, the only Prong album I know, or I know one song by Prong. Snap your finger, snap your neck. Yeah, I think Prong was a good, that's another good example of a band, at least at the time, was they were different. Like there was something unique about them and you could see that it was, um, it was, I don't know, influential kind of at the time, at least of being like how distinct it was from a lot of other metal. Um, 
you, you got a sense of that at the time of like, oh, this is going to be something other bands are going to do. Hmm. Either you guys uh, familiar with any of those bands, Prong, Love, Hate, Trouble? So you might, um, you might remember Love, Hate if I say, why do you think they call it dope? Which was, I think, the only single that I recall from that album, but it was kind of almost like like a pre-Buzzbin type thing where they it was one of those videos that they would I think they would mention during like commercial breaks or where they were advertising what they played um, but it was a strange strange uh, kind of not quite metal actually interesting I, I know how Tim might know Love Hate was how's that Jizzy Pearl oh really <laughs> future yeah, of bad. LA Guns that's his band, yeah. Okay. One of the best names ever. <laughs> uh, was he with LA Guns when we saw them? I've never seen him, no. We Did we see all LA Guns at uh, LA yeah, Sevilla? Yes, but I've never seen him, so no. Oh, okay. I thought, who was singing for them when, when we saw Phyllis. them? Phyllis. Oh, okay. I thought, I thought it was the Jizzy era. No, no, no. <laughs> um, and then uh, I forgot to mention we have a new patron at our two dollar tier. Ben joined us. Welcome, Ben. Thank you for uh, joining the union, supporting the podcast, and uh, feel free to chime in with your comments on episodes like these. Mike Bond, also, he gave us a whole list, some of which we've covered so far, but I wanted to mention some of the ones. He, he mentioned Happy Mondays and Ride and um, Fugazi. Some of the other ones, Sundays, Reading, Writing, and Arithmetic. That Petrol Emotion, Chemicrazy. I'm not familiar with that record. Um, Babes in Toyland, Spanking Machine. Mark Lanigan's The Winding Sheet. Very... Hmm. Uh, cool record that is i think believe that's his first solo record outside of screaming trees um if i'm not incorrect there but uh that would that was a i don't i don't i don't know how influential mark lanigan is in terms of like he's so unique that i don't know if people can necessarily duplicate or you know do what he's doing but he definitely seems to draw fans from a lot of different um genres i guess mm-hmm. because of who he works with outside of just doing him his own stuff yeah uh, he also mentioned uncle tupelo like we did uh the breeders pod this that's a 1990 album i would say that that's a pretty pr- important record for this year mm. it was cited by kurt cobain as one of the reasons why he wanted to record with um with albini right when we covered in utero, wasn't that? Yep, yep. Uh, James Goldmother album, Pixies Bo- Bossa Nova, Sonic Youth's Goo, The Cocteau Twins, Heaven or Las Vegas, The Laws, self-titled, The Darling Buds, Crawdaddy, and Pop Will Eat Itself, Cure for Sanity. Now, some of those are are I think obvious picks. I mean, are the Pixies an underground band anymore? <laughs> I'm not sure. Like, I feel like they've been written up as so much as being so important, and now they've been around 
longer in this incarnation than they were in their original. Right. It's almost, I don't know if they're like an unknown, <clears throat> underappreciated band anymore. I think everybody kind of <laughs> knows they exist. Or at least people who listen to, you know, 90s alternative. Well, yeah, they were definitely a band that was was didn't really seem to be fully appreciated until they broke up. Yeah. Is anybody Can I chime in here? Because I feel I'm going to be the resident uh, Pixies expert. I've seen them 18 times. Whoa! Uh, I just saw them last uh, month at a club here in Toronto. Um, by this point, uh, Pixies are headlining uh, Reading Festival. So, and it's at the 1990 Reading Festival where um, Perry Farrell sees the crowd uh, literally singing along to every lyric of uh, insert um, do little song here. But that was the moment of inspiration for the, the launching of Lollapalooza. Seeing these mad English folk uh, reciting every lyric of a pixie song uh, was enough to get uh, Lollapalooza up and running. So. Uh, they were firmly established, certainly in, in England and uh, in Europe in general, I would say, but it's particularly England, where they were just massive and continue to be. Yeah, I think that that's a actually really uh, interesting insight, because when I think of Gene's Addiction, obviously they have a big record this year, but um, I think of them more influential for, for things like that, like... Fell's impact just their spirit and like the fact that they broke through so early commercially it were so different mm. um, more so than like a lot of bands that sound like them you know yes yeah, some bands did ended up you know kind of copying their sound and going in that direction but I think they're to me I always think of them as being just more influential from a like a trailblazer kind of standpoint um, yeah. and tastemaker almost yeah, and, and creating more of like the overarching like momentum that others would would benefit and follow, including things like um, Lollapalooza. Yeah. Now, uh, some of the bigger bands that had albums out this year that I thought we should mention, and bigger bands, you know, relatively speaking, I'm not talking about um, Guns N' Roses, but uh, there were a couple of records that I think are, are relevant to our discussion. One is the Depeche Mode album that came out this year, Violator, which I think for me was the first time I really like listened to, Vi to De Depeche Mode. Like they were mm. someone that I kind of, you know, knew existed, 
But it wasn't until Violator where I was like seeing the videos constantly on MTV. And, you know, I mean, Personal Jesus and, and Policy of Truth and Enjoy the Silence, those were like just constantly on on radio which was weird because I did I don't remember necessarily hearing Depeche Mode on the radio before this like for people are people or that stuff which now seem like yeah. big singles but before that I don't feel like they maybe it was just this, where I was living at the <clears throat> time but well I, I think from me at least a mainstream standpoint I, up until this point I thought of them more as like like a synth pop or you know not something within the larger rock spectrum until violator and then it was like oh okay yeah i see how this fits in now and right. obviously that a lot of that had to do with mtv embracing it um commercial you know from a commercial standpoint but also you know personal jesus has a guitar part and it's like a pop song you know whereas some of the right. um, earlier stuff it's so keyboard driven it's it's kind of hard to see the crossover so that it's always felt like the crossover record that like made them easy, uh, digestible for people like me, <laughs> the MTV generation, I guess. And this is going to sound weird, uh, especially because for you, Jay, where, where you grew up and, and your influences, this is the year I kind of discovered ACDC with the Razor's mm-hmm. Edge. Yeah. Because that was a huge record. Yeah. It was massive. Thunderstruck was on. I, every hour. I mean, that was a huge single. And I only had heard maybe a song or two. I maybe heard Black and Black or Hell's Bells. And mm-hmm. maybe, uh, you know, You Shook Me All Night Long. I don't remember any video. I, I don't. Did, I know. They, did they have videos before that? Like, in the. I know they probably had yeah, videos in the 80s, but. Oh yeah, I don't yeah. remember seeing them. I, I just it they were completely off my radar up until this point, and then I was like, "Oh, who is this band?" Yeah. Um. I remember already regarding them as uh, as old timers. Like I still, I was amazed that they came out with an album that that was suddenly. I, I thought they were they were disappearing like. Uh, after the kind of the late '80s, I I thought they were spinning down, and that was going to be it. But that was a big surprise. Yeah, it's kind of like one of the first uh, moments where bands that were now classic were truly classic, like asserting themselves of like, no, we're still relevant, and we can be relevant, and we're going to continue to make money <laughs> and and keep putting out music um, because it was such a I mean, to your point, Tim, they had disappeared. I mean, they were putting records out, blow up your video, had a moment, um, who made who had a moment, but they were all sort of on the fringes of MTV and not really dominant. And then Razor's Edge came out and it just, I mean, they had two or three singles that were just heavy rotation all the time. They were back on the radio. um, Right. With those singles, Money Talks and thunderstruck and so yeah it was it was like back to you know back in black level exposure yeah i, I just uh not having a an older brother 
who was into or any or any you know family that was into uh, hard rock i didn't get exposed to that um well they were in those songs those albums were almost uh prior to this were really mostly on headbangers ball i mean I, they might pop here and there on mtv but a lot of it was secluded to like late night programming and not a lot of that stuff gets pl- was getting played on the radio or gets played on the radio now so I will say I was this year and and the next year uh there seemed to be a an influx of bands from the UK that were on the edge of like the Manchester scene like the KLF like the Soup Dragons Soup Dragons had Love God that came out in 90 with the single I'm free which is obviously the the Stones cover um those got played in in on like pop radio. Like I've joked around that I remember listening to all you know those bands plus um, Jesus Jones and you know in my in my coworkers when I worked at a grocery store in high school his Fiero like driving around just blasting like <laughs> Jesus Jones and and uh, that's awesome. The EMF sure. that was another one unbelievable that single i don't uh-huh. know i don't know what if that was 90 or 91 but 91 seemed, yeah it seemed like that in that two year span like those were the bands that were breaking through because i don't remember the happy mondays getting played or the stone roses um or in spiral carpets on mainstream u.s radio i know they were big in the uk but it seemed like these other bands that were you know dance electronica uh madchester uh, adjacent um, seem to be the ones that were making inroads, at least for a single, um, in the U.S. in, in 1991. Did anybody else have that experience of hearing those bands on the radio, like Soup Dragons and and KLF? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We had a radio station in Toronto called, uh, and still do, CFNY, but they were very, um, very much on the vanguard of breaking artists. Uh, Particularly, Toronto was a great market for English artists to kind of break in North America, almost before even New York or L.A. And um, Happy Mondays, Stone Roses, all of these bands got quite heavy rotation on uh, on our radio station here. And we had a couple of great television shows, um, one called The City Limits, uh, where literally they're 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 playing these videos that you wouldn't have seen on MTV uh, in a million years. So we were very fortunate here that um, being in Canada, you've got this lovely combination of American influence and uh, and English influence. So we're very fortunate that way. Now, one of the things that I noticed looking back um, at this year was there was a lot of albums that were released by bands that I, I'm a big fan of the band, but this was not the album that I would turn to to listen to. For example, this is the year that the Afghan Wigs put out Up In It, which is their first uh, first real record. They had an album out before that, but it was an independent release, and most of the songs got recycled for the for the release on Sub Pop. Um, I like a couple songs off of Up In It, but it's, it's not something I go back and listen to very often. Uh, this is the year of My Bloody Valentine's Glider, which I think if you to if you were gonna you know survey people, Loveless is gonna be the record that people are gonna mention. 
Um, the replacements all shook down. Again, I mean, that's... It's sort of the transition record between the replacements and Paul Westbrook going solo. Not not their finest record. Not one that I revisit all that often. Um, this is the Goo Goo Dolls Hold Me Up year. Mm-hmm. Another... <clears throat> Like, really solid record, has some good songs, but it doesn't match what they would do with, like, Superstar Car Wash or, you know, even even a boy named Goo. Are there records like that for you guys where you're like, oh, this is a band that I love, but this record is not the one. It's a good record that came out this year, but not exactly my favorite. So um, the the first one that, that I I think of on my list here is uh, Black Sheets of Rain from Bob Bold. Ah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I like Workbook more as far as... And then I actually like his, his uh, like self-titled solo album i think more than both of those two um but i mean i i still love the the sugar copper blue album i think because of the time that it came out it's like the the biggest like bob mold thing for me uh but uh yeah i was i was looking through this list and i was really surprised i was like oh yeah i forgot that that came out that year it's still a good album it's just uh um not my favorite of those two original uh solo albums of his Okay. Jay, you have any like that that are uh, particular bands um, that came out this year? Uh, one that I guess I would say ZZ Top's Recycler. I don't know that that's like the greatest ZZ Top era. <laughs> yeah. Um, it did pretty well though. I know that there's 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 folks that like it. I'm not a fan of it. I, it's just a little too um, artificial sounding for me, um, and it it lacks the fun that the '80s stuff had. Um, Into the point where it's like it's more goofy. Um, I, that's really the only one that really pops out as like you know of a band that you know it the their low point, I guess you could say, uh, or a lower point in their catalog would have been this year. Um, like, I mean, Red Cross, Cross puts out Third Eye, which is a l- little bit different, but mm-hmm. I think it's actually one of their better records. Um, but it's, it's definitely different than what they had done to that point. And um, what they had, have done since has been a little bit grittier and heavier, but I think it still um, is a, more of a highlight than it is a low light. Johnny, do you have any that uh, fit that criteria in terms of artists that you like but you know maybe this year wasn't their best year you know i feel like the artists i mentioned 
you know, they put out solid records for the most part. I think um, talking about the Happy Mondays uh, record, Pills and Thrills and Belly Aches, it was on constant rotation for me then. Uh, I find it almost unlistenable now. Um, that's the one that's most striking to me. Um, but I think, you know, by and large, these records of artists that I enjoyed then and now, you know, Pixies Bossa Nova holds up fine for me. Uh, Jane's Ritual de la Habitual, I think it's an amazing record. Um, all those English bands that I mentioned, so I uh, those are all good records. What were you going to say, Jeremy? Oh, I was just going to say that, that uh, I mean, I just have this, this horrible list with a lot of colors on it that I was looking at, and I... Um, uh, completely forgot about the uh, about dear 23 of frosting on the beater um and the follow-up to that uh dear 23 always just seemed a little too clean for me uh but it is interesting i while i was looking at this i saw that they actually had a song in there that was covered by ringo Starr a couple of years later which was kind of threw me for huh. a loop um and uh i mean it uh, Jawbreaker's Unfun album came out. That's not my favorite Jaw Jawbreaker album, um, but uh, you know it's, it's okay. Uh, and then uh, the Lemonheads put out uh, Lovey, which I think was the last album with the two with the two founders in the band. And you can tell that they're kind of transitioning into what uh, Evan Dondo was wanting to be. Um, and then uh, Cop Shoot Cop put out Consumer Revolt, uh, which is a tough listen and i kind of like that band um and helmet put out strap it on which is uh you know i think you guys kind of talked about that when you reviewed one of their albums uh, a couple years back um so there's, there's just a lot of that stuff there's a lot of bands where I, I like the band but they just put out something that year that i wasn't necessarily enthralled with i do have to say that it, when I was looking back at the list of stuff that came out, not just in terms of what we normally cover on the podcast, but also just in terms of overall, you know, what got reviewed on in Rolling Stone or what what got played on MTV or what have you, this was a a huge year for me in terms of like hip hop, and I don't know why, but for some reason, like I started listening to a I mean I might have been a classmate that was like telling me, oh, you should check this out. But when I looked back, this was the year of LL Cool J's Mama Said Knock You Out, Public Enemy's Fear of a Black Planet, um, Ice Cube put out America's Most Wanted, Digital Underground's Sex Packets, uh, even, <laughs> I don't know if this is hip-hop, uh, CNC Music Factory's Gonna Make You Sweat. I, I, I had that on cassette. Like, I wore that out. <laughs> MTV wasn't playing that enough for you. Nope. You had to spit it on a cassette. So. I think I actually actually bought his singles <laughs> because they had remixes. Yeah, and I had like the extended oh, yeah, remixes. Singles were big. That the, there was like a two. Well, I'm probably longer, but yeah, this was of that era when singles were huge. Bel Biv Devos Poison. I mean, that was huge. Yeah. I listened <laughs> to that like crazy. Yeah. Um, what else was there? I mean, it Urban Dance Squad. No, I was more on. I mean, there was Salt and Pepper's Black Magic came out this year. Um, 
like I, I was it's weird to look back now I guess I have to like own up to it like snaps world power which has rhythm as a dancer on it like I had that kiss single um like some really like dancey soul to soul which had back back to life that that single which you started getting into like it's not hip-hop it's like into that like new jack that was happening in the early 90s with like uh ralph tresvant and uh oh who else i i don't know if if uh um who was the other it was like uh i think johnny you said gill <laughs> okay if i said enough I'm just saying my my this is when this is like kind of the year that my interest started to diverge because like pretty much in the 80s I was, I was listening to like Phil Collins and Billy Joel and 80s metal like whatever's on the radio oh, yeah. and this is like the first year where I'm like oh like what is this you know hello cool J what's going on here and uh, where I actually started buying stuff that was a little more diverse so on the uh just uh, looking at some lists here there are a couple like mega bands that um that i'm seeing here that probably you could argue had their lowest point so uh this is the year that black sabbath puts out uh tear which is not a well-regarded record i don't know that it's their worst they probably have worse but this is not a highlight in their catalog um heart puts out the brigade which has that all i want to do is make love to you song on it which oh. is <laughs> for a yeah. band that has made some incredible music not their highest point no. uh so there's definitely oh this is uh cheap tricks busted so Oof. yeah um bad company's holy water which is i think when they had a different singer you know so this is also some very low territory for some bands that like are rock and roll hall of famers <laughs> Uh, and 1990 was not kind to them. It's when uh, Don Dockin put out his uh, solo effort. Yeah, and uh, actually, the Lynch Mob record came out that year, which I'm a, I'm actually a big fan of. So yeah, big difference between those two. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and don't forget about when uh, don't forget about the Striper album when they dumped their fan base against the law. Yeah. Yeah. They got rid of the black and yellow and tried to go like mainstream non-christian rock oh and uh you might also be interested to know that 1990 uh there was a uh cherry pop and daddy's album huh really i didn't know i didn't know those bands were making anything that far back well did they start out a little more punk uh yeah I, i believe so that's what i think that's what i recall from when we did our discussion i mean this is a there's definitely some interesting stuff that came out that i didn't recall like this is the year that um iggy pop put out brick by brick which has that candy single with kate pearson from the b52s and i can't say that i was i knew anything by iggy pop like you know as a as a 10 year old or a 12 year old in the 80s i'm not listening to raw power I don't. I don't have any clue that that exists. So this might have been my like ex- first exposure on MTV to to Iggy Pop because I know there was a yeah. video for that. 
Yeah, that no doubt introduced him to that generation of people. You burn my heart with a flickering torch. I had a dream that no one else could see. You gave me love for. That actually turned me off from paying any attention to him. Uh, when people were saying, hey, you should listen to this, I was like, oh, I've heard that Candy song. I'm, uh, I'm okay. It doesn't really sound like punk there you rock go, to me. Yeah. Uh, this is also the year, this is very important, of D-Light's World Click, which is, has uh, Grooves in the Heart, which crossed over with my new interest in hip-hop because Q-Tip appears on that song from uh, a Tribe Called Quest. So, I told you stopped him. What? <laughs> okay. <laughs> there's also some. Uh, but, there's some interesting indie records that came out on on smaller labels. For example, Soul Asylums and the Horse They Rode In On, which I actually really like that record. Uh, it's before they, you know, broke through with uh, Grave Dancers Union, which would follow up in two years. Uh, but this this was a record that I, uh, my roommate in college, well, one of my roommates in college was a big Soul Sound fan and he and I only knew like Grave Dancers Union at that point. And he was like, No, 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 you gotta go back and check out the early part of the catalog. So I checked out that record and I really liked it. Um I can't say I'm a huge fan of this record, but this is because I don't know it that well. Uh this is the year that um the Flaming Lips put out in a priest driven ambulance. And again this is like sort of in their more experimental, less uh you know what they would move it'll take another couple albums before they get to the more commercially acceptable sounds um in 93 with transmissions from the satellite heart but um so this stuff was definitely happening even if it was on a you know lesser known scale well yeah the um i guess what i'm struck by when i i look look at my list and listen to you guys bring up records um it's very diverse. Yeah. And for I, I bet for the music business, I'm sure this was a pretty good year, but um, it was so all over the place. I mean, really, this is a dramatic amount of, um, you know, music that's relevant um, and, and varied. And that's hard to market. It's hard to, like, format. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of miss this, like... I don't know when I when I listen to there's some good quality stuff across a wide spectrum of genres um, that I'm not sure I don't know if ever happened again because then it became just so and it was also the same like at this time you could also like I think I've told the story before but like a good example of you know I'm sitting in the cafeteria it would have been 91 and uh, some kid comes in. He says the word Nirvana, and he's talking about an album. And I think he's talking about Robert Plant's Manic Nirvana, which came out in 90. And he's obviously talking about 
Nirvana. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, oh, yeah, 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 I've heard that. It's really good. Yeah, it's, it's one of his better records, blah, blah, blah. And we're like, having this conversation, and we're talking about two different things. And, like, it was totally believable because he liked Robert Plant, right? So, like, it wasn't, it wasn't like um, he was from another planet, right? But you could be friends with people and be talking about bands that you like that were just totally on different spectrums, like everything from Queensryche to, you know, I don't know, Jellyfish or maybe Alice in Chains or King's Axe yeah. or, you know what I mean? Like, but then within a year, it was like, well, wait a minute. No, I, those you can't like those bands, and I, you know, this person likes this stuff, and they don't like this stuff now. So, it, I don't know. I just there was just this magic time of like everything was it was kind of a mess, but it was also um, still open, and everything was cool. Like, and it was just about all different kinds of music, and um, it hadn't been capitalized on like a way to divide music up and then put it back in buckets that were you know, cool and not cool and how to, you know, market it. Um, so to me, when I look at all uh, 90 as a whole, even getting into some of that hip hop stuff you're talking about and the, that little piece of uh, Manchester and, and those types of things like that was all on MTV at the same time. Um, yeah. One, you know, within an hour you would see all that stuff and it all kind of made sense. Um, and I don't think we've ever gotten back there again from a commercial like pop standpoint um, since it's been much more narrow, um, unfortunately. So it makes me yeah. a little nostalgia, nostalgic for this uh, this one, more so than another year's, you know? Right. Yeah. There is definitely a, a schizophrenic nature to this year that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the records that we we like for, or our, our favorites from this year, maybe ones that are, are known and then maybe some that are, are far less known that are, are underappreciated ones that we think that are, are really great and people should, should uh, know about Johnny. I'll start with you. What are, what are your, some of your favorite records from this year, both well-known and not so well-known? Uh, so, well known, I'm gonna go with um, yeah, Pixies Bossa Nova. You know, it's got a great uh, surf rock vibe, very um, I don't know, very movie soundtrackish. Um, coming off of Do Little, it, it, it was a bit of a left turn, but but I think a good one. Uh, obviously, uh, Jane's Addiction has kind of broken open the that whole scene with uh, Ritual de Habitual. It's it's that first side is is quite remarkable. Um, the two that I'm going to say are, are, are lesser known would be uh, the Jesus Lizards uh, debut record called Head. Uh, they've got the Mac McNeely, their drummer, um, in the fold for this. Uh, they previously, the year before, put out a, an EP called Pure, but it only had a drum machine, so they weren't fully realized yet. But with Head, they've firmly established and right out of the gates uh, their unique sound that they would go on to master and then the next two records and um i'm gonna say uh cocteau twins um heaven or las vegas for me is a real ethereal masterpiece uh elizabeth frazier's got one of the most striking voices you're ever going to hear 
Uh, and the guitar work on that record is by Robin Guthrie is, is quite remarkable. And so of the two that are lesser known for me, the Jesus Lizard and uh, the Cocteau Twins. All right. Excellent choices. Jeremy, how about you? What are your favorites from this year, both well-known and lesser known? Uh, the, I guess the, the, I guess you could call them well-known now. Um, I guess my, my favorites would be Faith, Hope, Love from, uh, King's X, uh, Fugazi's Repeater. Um, I really love Some Friendly from the Charlatans. I was turned on to their second album and went back and got that one. Um, I just think it's, it just sounds amazing. Um, I mean, it's, there's a lot of bands that kind of sounded the same, but I just think that they crafted some pretty good songs. Um, and I've always wanted to do a mashup of Sprost and uh, Green from that album and uh, Born to be Wild. I think they go well together. Um, the, uh, I still go back to Rest in Peace, if I'm ever wanting to go back to kind of the metal days. Um, Alice in Chains' Facelift, I, I think I actually go back to that more than I do Dirt. Um, Jane's Addiction, of course. Um, and then probably the most obscure one uh, that I could pick out here that we haven't even mentioned, and I don't think anybody ever will, uh, is a self-titled album from Swell, which I think came out in 1990, but then it was re-released by when they when they got signed. It was re-released in 91. Um, I know the 91 version of the album, which is shorter. I think it only has like 10 tracks on it. Um, but if you try to stream the album, you're going to get the original version, which is a little bit longer, has a few extra tracks and different mixes on it. So it's a little frustrating trying to turn somebody onto that album, because if I do, they're more likely going to hear the, the, the version that I didn't fall in love with. Um, but that's probably the, the strangest one of the bunch, uh, that I could pick out here. All right. Jay, how about you? Well, I think mother, mother Lobone Apple is the one I go back to the most i didn't discover it in 90 though i didn't i was um probably 91 92 um and king's x faith hope love um is a record i go back continually to um jellyfish's belly button um somewhat we did a whole episode on that so you can go search for that one um what else I, I like Hold Me Up by Goo Goo Dolls. To me, it's like uh, that's probably the record that captures their punk spirit in the most, you know, concise um, way. And then I think as you move to the next record with Superstar Car Wash, you start to hear the production go up and, you know, them really kind of be, start to become the band they became. So if you kind of interested in their raw, raw early side, but you want the most, you know, the greatest hits version, I guess you could say. <laughs> Hold me up to me is is the example of that. Um, obscure wise, I mean, I, I really, I mean, I'm still for this year very much in the more of the you know commercial hard rock kind of side at this point um, in my musical uh, journey. So one that I think probably gets forgotten about is um, that's worth a, a listen if you're into you know. Um, these types of bands would be Faster Pussycats Whipped, which is their third record. And it's them like, it's probably the last, I mean, to me, the last record they ever really did. Everything that came off to that is kind of just garbage, like not real records, like leftover stuff or one person. So it, it's probably um, 
the most um, expansive. You get to hear like even things like they're doing that, you know, people like Marilyn Manson start to do a little bit later. Um, um, it's it's hooky, but it's also, you know, it's got some good like heavy stuff on it and there's some fun moments and that's just a record that, you know, was definitely forgotten, even if you're familiar with that genre of music um, within it. Um, it's still pretty interesting to me. So in terms of the stuff that was big and, and you know, people know, Depeche Mode, uh, Violator, and uh, the uh, Alice in Chains that's been mentioned, that's, I, I agree. I think that's the record I probably go back to more than any of the records, it, just in terms of what I want to listen to. That, that has, There's something unique about that record. And um, I still, I do guys... I still do go listen back and listen to that Public Enemy Fear of a Black Planet, Planet record. That's that's important to me. Um, in terms of the lesser known stuff, I mean, or I, I guess you should include Pixies with the um, stuff, the well known stuff, because th- honestly, there's not a Pixies record I don't enjoy listening to. Um, and then um, obviously, I'm a huge Uncle Tupelo fan, so I listen to uh, No Depression. Uh, at least once a year. Um, and then, I mean, there's stuff that we've covered that I really do like, like the Breeders Pod and, and um, Concrete Blonde's Bloodletting. And um, trying to remember what else we've covered. Oh, Jellyfish's Belly Button. Um, as far as, like, the lesser-known stuff, I, I mean, I don't know if you could put, if, if uh, Uncle Tupelo go, goes in that category or not. Um, I'll agree with uh, the... The um, Cocteau Twins, Heaven in Las Vegas. That was a band I was, I'm super late to it. Not, I haven't gotten really into them until the last couple of years. So uh, not something that I had all that familiarity with. Um, one that I remember being sort of interested in, and it's the first time I remember really paying attention to a soundtrack, and this is the year of Angelo Baldamenti's soundtrack from Twin Peaks which I remember having a really big impact, not only because I loved the show and was obsessed with it when it came out, but it's a very moody and weird soundtrack. And um, I feel like for television, that was a big deal. I don't remember, like, I remember movie soundtracks being a big deal. But other than theme songs, I don't remember there being soundtracks that were a big deal. And that was, to me, was something that was kind of big at the time that that had happened. So in terms of like underappreciated or, or not really well known, I feel like the the soundtrack for Twin Peaks is is a big one. Um, and then one that I've again gotten into very late is this is the year of Nick Cave's uh, and the Bad Seeds, the Good Son, and um, not it's not my absolute favorite Nick Cave record, but it's a good record. And um, I don't I don't know that Nick Cave is a household name in the United States. Definitely is in Australia, but not. In the U.S., so I would put that on the lesser known as well. So I already need to make a correction. Oh, okay. What, <laughs> the what album you... I went on about <laughs> being under underappreciated came out in '92. So forget that. Uh, Fast Pussy gets whooped came out in '92, not '90. So we'll do that in a couple years. Wait, what? What? <laughs> didn't they have an album come out this year though? Uh, no. I, I, my MP3s are labeled that it came out in 90, uh, and I went back and looked, and it's actually 92. And they had an album that came out in 89. 
Okay, well, you which can makes just... sense because they have a uh, on the record actually one of the better songs is called Mr. Lovejoy, which is a tribute to Andrew Wood, and that's what triggered me. I was like, wait a minute, how can that song be on there in '90 when he had, would have just died? Like right. within, <laughs> I was like, oh, because it came out like, two years later. I I did fail to mention, and this I don't know where this goes, but this is one of the first cassettes I ever bought. It may have been the first cassette was Eric Johnson's Avia Musicom. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I still have it. And uh, Lifts of Dover got Lifts like... Lifts of Dover. That got, got radio airplay. Think yeah, this was a, that yeah. was a year of uh, Steve Vai's Passion and Warfare too. So yeah, yeah. Instrumental guitar was really kind of picking up right at the turn of the decade there. Yeah. And it was getting commercial attention. Like, think about mm-hmm. that again. Throwing to the point I was trying to make earlier about... Just how diverse it was. I mean, you had stuff like Cliffs of Dover getting radio airplay. I mean, no vocals on it at all. Like, when when is that going to happen again? Oh, never. Right. It'll never happen again. And you'd even swayed a uh, little Tim to uh, little Tim. go check it out by cassette. That's amazing. Yep. Plunked down his hard-earned money and and bought a cassette <laughs> of instrumental guitar jams. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, Ingve um, Malmsteen came out with an album this year, but there I don't I think there was only like one instrumental on it. So, Eclipse. Yep. Yep. For I think his fourth singer. I I kind of had gotten to the point where I was just like, okay, I'm just going to ignore the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, a couple albums that I, I we didn't mention, but I, I thought we we might mention. This is the year of uh, They Might Be Giants Flood, which mm-hmm. is a, a well-regarded album. Uh, Primus is Frizzle Fry. Uh, that one did not come up. Slaughter's Stick It To Ya. That's a, that's this, this is a, this is prime power ballad year. Oh, right? yeah, it is. Yes, it is. More Than Words from Extreme. Slaughter had Firehouse. a power ballad. Warrant's Firehouse. got a power ballad. Yep. Yeah, there's, there's a ton. Damn Yankees, all those bands. Mm-hmm. Slaughter's Fly of the Angels. Nelson. Nelson. Yep. Oh yeah. This is. I mean. Yeah. Yep. Sound, Scorpions. Zidi. Don't forget Scorpions. Winds of change. Winds of change. Yeah. And a really, really important one. Uh, Yntz ninth album, fittingly called Ten. <laughs> uh, perfect. And of course, the album of the year, uh, "Gonna Make You Sweat" by CNC Music Factory. That's a. Uh, my Jam. jams Tim's but, Tim's Tim's uh, jams when he was in uh, high school baseball and he would he would go to the uh, to the uh, batting cage and rip it up to some gonna make you sweat I'm warning you <laughs> <laughs> hey hey all right Jeremy Johnny thank you so much this was a lot of fun I'm glad we got to cover all of this in our hour of power for 1990. Um, and thank thanks you. to all our commenters over at Patreon who gave us lots of good albums to talk about. And of course, thanks our folks over um, on our socials as well at uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram that comment and, and whatnot. And of course, if you uh, want to be like Ben, our, our newest patron, you can join us over at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com to become a patron for as little as two bucks a month 
or you can join us at uh, additional levels. Join the union to uh, get some sweet swag, t-shirts, get a 12-month pick. We have a couple of those available right now where you can get a 12-month pick. You pick the record. Come on, talk about it with us. And, of course, we have lots of polls. Got a poll going on right now. Picking our next uh, selection from our suggestions over at digmeoutpodcast.com where you can suggest an album, tell us why we should listen to it, and it goes into our hopper for a poll for all of our patrons to vote on. And if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback. Where, Jay? Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. <sighs> For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash digmeout and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. <laughs>